I assume that many of you, like Christy and I, have been enjoying from time to time the British presentation of the life of Queen Elizabeth called The Crown. There's quite a bit of historical debate these days about how accurate some of the dramatic presentations are. It's an astonishingly well-done cinematic offering and holds your attention. But I'm impressed and reminded every time I watch an episode of how counterintuitive it is for Americans to watch and be entertained by this program. Because there's all kinds of your royal highnesses and all kinds of sovereign. There's all kinds of references to ruling and to reigning. And that doesn't strike us as Americans very well. In fact, I'm really astonished that it's still that way in, with our cousins across the pond, as they say, because it also doesn't fit well with the individualism that is part of Western culture right now. The emphasis upon individual rights, the focus upon nobody's going to tell me what to do, and yet in that part of the world, they still talk about a queen, or now it's a king, who rules and reigns. He's called a sovereign. That's such an odd word in a time of individualism, in a time of radical independence, in a time in which we live lives, daily lives, with the attitude, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I was waiting on an order in Starbucks this week, and I was standing against the wall well out of the way. And the guy came up and told me I had to clear out that pathway because it was a fire hazard. I mean, it was like a five-foot walkway at the end of the, the counter, and I started to argue with him. <laughs> You'll be so pleased with your pastor. <laughs> All I said was, seriously? <laughs> and then I moved, because none of us like to be told what to do. But what we find in our text this morning, and what is inherent in a biblical worldview, and what is assumed in what we call the gospel, is we have a sovereign. We have one who rightly rules. And that's clear in our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Our text this morning really reads like a a king's decree, because that's exactly what it is. At a turning point in future history, in fact, really, after time has passed away, the sovereign of the universe will proclaim a decree, and that's our text today. All of this at the end of the book of Revelation contrasts the the present age we're in, and if you'll remember the future temporal kingdom age that in which Jesus will reign on the earth. But then after that is over, the Bible says the heavens and the earth will flee. For Second Peter says that everything will be refashioned, will be destroyed and made new. And a new age, an eternal age, begins. It's a new world. It will be a new world, a new beginning, a fresh start. And we'll Look at those specifics more next week because there are 
wonderful promises, and there are also great mysteries in the text that we'll pick up next Sunday. The, the promise of a refashioned, physical yet eternal. How, how did those two things go together? There's some level of physicality in our eternal existence, but it's not the kind of physical existence we know today. And we'll press into that some next week as we pick up in verse 9 and finish the 21st chapter of Revelation. But for this morning, there's a declaration by the one who is on the throne. And you know the one who is on the throne is a sovereign. Throne implies authority. Throne implies what it says goes. What the one who occupies the throne, he's in charge. That's what we'll find. To give us a sense of context, let's go back to verse 1 where we started last week and read down through verse 8. As I do every week, I remind you this is God's word for us today. Revelation chapter 1, excuse me, 21, beginning in verse 1. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people or people's. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And now our text for this morning. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This future proclamation that is revealed in the past and recorded in the Word of God for us as a sense of clarity and understanding about what the end of time will look like, this declaration by the one on the throne has relevance for us today living in Santa Barbara in the 21st century. You might ask, at least on a surface level, how can that be? Because the sovereign who reigns, this eternal sovereign, one day when he says these words, he will be referring 
to you and to me. We are in this declaration. We are in this decree. You and I are in this text one way or another. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me interested to find out what the eternal God, when time has ended and eternity begins, and he makes a declaration, and if I'm in that declaration, I want to know what that is, what that means, and what difference that might make for us today. And so that's what I want to show you this morning out of Revelation 21. Because what I find here is I find identity markers for both the sovereign, a way to understand who he is by his self-proclamation, and also identity markers about people like you and me. Let me show you what I mean. There are identity markers about the one who is on the throne, the sovereign one. And the first one, there are two in the text. The first one is this, that what he proclaims is trustworthy. That marks the sovereign of the universe. What he proclaims is trustworthy. It is true. It is dependable. Notice again what the text says in the middle of verse 5. Also, he said, the one on the throne, it could be some scholars think that this is the angel who, not interrupts, but the angel who instructs John. The text isn't clear, so we don't know for sure. It comes with the authority of heaven one way or another. Notice what it says, write this down, for these words, the words that the sovereign has just said, these words are trustworthy and true. You remember when Jesus comes back in chapter 19, when he will lead the armies of heaven for the great ending battle, he comes with a sash, and the, the title of who he is, it says, faithful and true. So this describes his very nature. And an identity marker of the sovereign of the universe is what he says you can believe. What he proclaims is trustworthy. It's trustworthy as opposed to nearly everything you and I experience in this rebel world. I mean, how much can we really count on what we hear? How much can we really count on what other people say? Not necessarily in always a nefarious way. The truth is people sometimes have best intentions in the promises they make. Sometimes they represent things to us with their best intention, but we find out that reality sometimes, often, falls far short of that. In this world, very little is trustworthy and true. We find this in the systems that surround us. We sometimes find it in our relationships. And if we're honest this morning, we sometimes recognize that those faults in our own hearts, a failure to be faithful and trustworthy and true. But the one who sits on the throne who will one day say these words, the sovereign of the universe, whatever he says, you can count on. You can bank on it. It is trustworthy. It is true. The angel, or perhaps the one on the throne himself, says, write it down. Have you thought about that in the ancient world? It's not just they didn't have keyboards and computers. I was thinking this week of what sermon preparation would be like I do remember, believe it or not, what it was like before computers and keyboards, typewriters. Before that, pencil and pen, paper. But before that, 
How rare was writing? I mean, in the ancient world, there, were, there was the availability of papyrus. Sometimes animal hides were used to write on, but those were very, very limited in scale and, and in availability. And so the truth is, it was very rare, and therefore it was something that was very important and valuable for it to be written down. So don't just skim over this and think, yeah, yeah, John is to write it down. We know we have the Bible. To write something down in the ancient world not only was for the purpose that it might not pass away, but that it might be memorialized with clarity and with certainty and that it had great value. When you're headed into the marketplace in the ancient Roman Empire, you didn't write out your shopping list. But we have examples from the ancient world of wills and testaments where things that mattered were written down. And the angel says to John, write this down for clarity, for certainty. And I think that should remind us this morning of a reality that we struggle with, and we've talked about it often. And that's the question that if God has given us his promises, if God has made himself known, if we have the revelation of God in Scripture, then how will we manage that and use that in our lives? Because here's what happens. Far too often, we look at our circumstances and we evaluate what God has said based on our circumstances. And so if our circumstances are any less than ideal, if our circumstances aren't turning out the way we had hoped, we find ourselves doubting or questioning or being frustrated with the promises of God. We evaluate, far too often, we evaluate our circumstances or our, the Word of God based on our circumstances. But if we see the Word of God for what it is, the Bible, if we see the Bible for what it is, we will always evaluate our circumstances, be they good or be they bad, we will always evaluate those based on the Word of God. Because what He says is trustworthy. You can't trust your circumstances. You can't trust all that is around you, but you can trust what God has said in His Word. Because our sovereign is trustworthy in all of the he proclaims. That's not all. It's not just that what he proclaims is trustworthy, but also what he ordains is comprehensive. What he ordains is comprehensive. Let me try to describe what I mean by that. What he ordains, what he controls, what he directs, it is all-encompassing. There is nothing that's outside the scope of God's purpose and plan. God has never lost control. He's never had an uh-oh. He's never looked down and said, what do I do now? The, the sovereignty of God is pervasive and comprehensive. And whatever he has ordained, it is comprehensive of all our existence. There are mysteries here about how we still have the freedom to make our own choices, and yet somehow in the infinity of God, He has ordained that nevertheless. And that's a mystery that we won't even address this morning, but look at what the text says in verse 6. Read it there. Follow along. It says, And He said to me, the one on the throne, He said to me, It is done. What is done? Well, the judgments, the curse, death, 
Everything we've read about in Revelation, the bloodshed, the terror, the persecution, the problems, Babylon and its systemic rebellion against the Creator, all of it is done. And then he says, I am the Alpha and Omega. You recognize that, right? The first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am A to Z. Now think about that. That's a vastly comprehensive claim. They tell us in history the Jews took to talking about their God from time to time as Aleph to Tav, the Hebrew alphabet. All-encompassing, comprehensive. And then in case you missed the point, he goes further. Do you see it? I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So he is not subject to time. He is above and beyond time. The mystery of this not to dive into too much philosophy this morning, but the mystery of this is he created time, and therefore he is the Lord over it. By the way, these words are familiar to us because the book of Revelation begins with this same kind of claim. Although if you look back in chapter 1, verse 8, not now, but later, you'll find that this same phrase, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, he also calls himself there the Almighty, which is a familiar word in Revelation. It shows up over and over again. I am the Almighty. And I wondered why it's omitted here. And I have my theory. My theory is because he has nothing else to prove. I mean, all of it is over. It's all turned out the way he said it would. He doesn't have to assert that he's Almighty anymore because the evidence is when he says these words, every bit of evidence will prove it. I am the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am A to Z. Now, I want you to think about this. It seems to me that this is one of the boldest, most stunning, all-encompassing claims of history. What God is saying, the one on the throne, our sovereign, He's saying, I am the source, I am the author, I am the controller, I am the definer. He's saying, I am the director and the ruler of history and eternity. The implication is there is nothing that has ever happened, that ever will happen, that is outside the scope of our sovereign's control and purposes. That's stunning. And what he is saying here, the fact that what he ordains is comprehensive, what he is saying here is is that this is the summary of the storyline of history. This is the summary of Scripture. It's possible to argue that if you want to know what history is about, it's about God. It's about God as the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the A to Z. He is the comprehensive authority and summary of everything. History is His story. And that's what He says here. And in case we wonder, this is confirmed in the Word as well. For instance, in the book of Romans chapter 11, we read these words, For from Him and through Him and to Him are some things, no, all things, 
To him be glory forever. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, referring specifically to Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in all things, in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you have any question there about what is the scope and the comprehensive purpose of all existence? And it's affirmed also in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, where at the culmination of his great prayer in the middle of that letter, Paul says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. What the one who is on the throne, what he ordains is comprehensive. And it's appropriate that this text is in Revelation because Revelation is the unveiling. That's the point of Revelation. It's the reveal. It's the revealing of God's ultimate purposes. It's the reason the study of Revelation is important. You hear a lot of mockery these days, kind of dismissal, dismissiveness about, well, we don't really care about eschatology because everybody has different opinions and what does it matter. Imagine the Bible without the book of Revelation. How does this thing get wrapped up? How is the sovereignty of God culminated? How do we know that God's promises are ultimately carried through? No, they are. Because He is A to Z, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. What He ordains is comprehensive. This is how everything works. And you see here a level of heartbreak. Because our neighbors, for some of us, our family members, those that live in the world apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ and the truths that are in the Word of God, they're trying to make sense of life denying or ignoring the very summary of life. They're trying to figure out birth and life and death without recognizing what existence is about. And if you think about it and I think about it, the places where we struggle, where we either yield to temptation or the places where we get in despair and we get discouraged, they are almost always cases where we're forgetting the comprehensive ordaining authority and sovereignty of the God of the universe that He is accomplishing His purpose. And my individual comfort or in the sense of temptation, my momentary pleasure, not only will deface His character, but is insignificant in the purposes that are eternal, that He is working. This is the sovereign we have. He is the definition of reality. This is what it's all about and if I could take you back to the days in which we raised our teenagers or warn some of you parents who are approaching that time, here's the question that we need to continue to ask. Who is the center of the universe? Who's the center of the universe? And don't just give a Sunday school answer. 
If you've been in church, you know the answer to the question. But you ask yourself, who's the center of the universe in the way you're living your life right now today? In the way you're managing your spare time, in the way you're involved in the life of others, in the way you're serving those around you, in the way you're, you're committing yourself to the Word of God. Who's the center of your universe? Because the one on the throne says, I am. The God of the universe says, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am A to Z. I am beginning to end. What I have ordained is comprehensive over everything. Who's the center of your universe? Now here's the point this morning. The the kind of the hinge that I'm trying to hang this text on. Uh, These trustworthy claims that basically are in the Word of God, and, and this comprehensive sovereignty that he claims for himself, these are identity markers. They're foolish if we apply them to anyone else. I mean, it's ludicrous if I were to stand here and claim that I am always trustworthy and true. It'd be ludicrous for me to say that I am A to Z. It'd be ludicrous for me to say I am the center of the universe. But it's an identity marker of the sovereign. It's what he is saying in this text. And it's not necessarily exhaustive. There are a whole lot of other identity markers about the sovereign of the universe. But these are certainly true and they are meaningful. And when we say identity markers, this will be important for later. So let me just say it and we'll circle back to it. When we say identity markers, we're saying what he is by his nature. We're not merely saying what he does. We're saying this is a marker of who he really is. And what we find in his words is he does not only express his identity, but he also, and here's where we come in, he expresses our identity. That's right here in the text. Because we don't just find identity markers of the eternal sovereign of the universe. We also find in his words the identity markers of his eternal subjects. We are subjects of the sovereign. No one who has ever lived is ever not a subject of the eternal sovereign of heaven. The great problem is that so many live in rebellion. They are rebellious subjects. And the truth is, this text is very basic because it boils down into two categories. Pardon me if I'm too simplistic. But that's what I find in Scripture over and over again. There are two categories. There are people who have found their identity, their forgiveness, and their hope in a relationship with God through grace. And there are people who have said to God, I'm good. I'll I'll handle this on my own. I got this. Oh, sometimes they do it in a way that looks, appears almost humble. I'm good. I'm serving my fellow man. I'm being a good neighbor. I'm doing my best. Other people chase after gross and immoral kinds of pursuits, and they say to God, I want to make my own choices. I'm doing good. But make no mistake, that's just all one category. It's one category of people that look to the God of heaven and say, I'm on my own. You may be sovereign, 
in your mind, imagine saying this to God. But I'll be my own king. I'll be my own ruler. No one's going to tell me what to do. After all, I'm a pretty good person. I pay my bills. I keep my yard nice. I'm good to my neighbors. I'll establish my own righteousness, if you will. Thank you. I'll handle it myself. And those individuals are still subjects of the eternal sovereign. They are just only in rebellion against him. They are exalting their pride. And they are saying, I'll do it my way. Only two categories. Only two religions The religion that says, I'll handle this myself, or the religion that Jesus offers, which says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's only two destinies. Once again, the words of Jesus. There's a broad way, and the broad way leads to destruction. There's a narrow way, the narrow way leads to life. So they're identity markers of eternal subjects. First of all, in verses 6 and 7, he talks about his subjects that are not in rebellion, his subjects that are included in the eternal kingdom. And that's the first point. These are identity markers of those who are included in his eternal kingdom. They are included in the promised blessedness that we're going to read over the next couple of weeks in chapters 21 and 22. These identity markers, there are once again, there are two in the text. Now, there are many more, but there are two that God brings out as he talks about not only his own identity, but he talks about the identity of those who are his subjects, specifically those who are included in the blessedness of heaven. The first one is in verse 6 at the end of the verse. Would you glance at it with me? He says there, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In other words, I will freely give. To the thirsty, I will freely give from the spring of the water of life. Now, let me suggest this. Here's an identity marker for us. Identity marker for those of us that hope to be included in the eternal kingdom. And the first identity marker is they begin, we begin, in humility. We begin in humility. We begin as people admitting that we're thirsty. And for the thirsty, the God of heaven says, come and drink. Come and drink. To the thirsty I will freely give from the spring of the water of life. Those who are included in God's kingdom begin in humility. The metaphor here, especially in the ancient Near East, would have been very compelling. After all, In ancient times and in the Near East, what's more precious than fresh water? What commodity could be more valuable, more necessary than fresh water? And when you're thirsty, most of us have never genuinely experienced true thirst. When you're thirsty, imagine what water will do. This is the metaphor here. It's a common metaphor. Uh, Go with me in your Bibles back to Isaiah 55 for a moment, because there's wonderful language here that undoubtedly 
the God of heaven who inspired and who speaks in the book of Revelation also inspired Isaiah. And so the language is the same language. Isaiah 55, look at it with me for just a moment. The 55th chapter of Isaiah. And look at what the prophet says there, speaking on behalf of the God of Israel. Isaiah 55, remember this passage? Look at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Do you catch that? I love that. You got no money? Come buy and eat. How do I do that? Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here. You see, there's a a call to humility that flows through the interactions of the God of heaven with people who are in need. And the first step always has to be you acknowledge your need. Instead of going out and spending your money to try to satiate your hunger and satisfy your thirst, it's come and forget about your money because it doesn't work in this economy, but receive satisfaction. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you, you do not know, a nation that did not know you shall, uh, shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Do you see the need? Do you see the humility necessary? You seek, you call. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's the point of that? Because if we were God, we wouldn't take ourselves back. You catch that? Remember a couple of years ago when we studied through the book of Judges? I mean, those people were were hopeless. And if I were God, they would be out of the pool. And God says to the prophet, just come back. Just come back in humility. That's where it begins It begins by acknowledging your thirst. If we took time this morning, we could contrast this living water with the cups that the harlot of Babylon offer in chapter 16 and 17 of Revelation. We could compare it to the shepherd who finds water for his sheep in Psalm 23. We could compare it, obviously you've already thought of it, with Jesus who offers the woman by the well living water from which she'll never thirst again. But we need to think about it today. How is this spiritual thirst that is this metaphor all the way through Scripture, how is it being quenched in our times? The people who live across the street, the ones that you've been inviting to come to visit our church, the ones that you work with, this spiritual hunger, this desire, this this thirst that it's part of the, the brokenness and the rebellion of this world, how are the people around you quenching that thirst? By the way, how are you 
quenching that thirst. Don't miss this. It's astonishing to me in this decree of the king when time is over, in this future decree that he reveals to us, so it's like time travel almost. This is what will happen in the future, but we understand what will happen. Do you realize that God takes the time to give us another offer? It won't be any good at that time. There won't be any more opportunity because death and hell are passed away. Judgment has happened. But what God the Sovereign is doing in letting us know what He will say at the beginning of the eternal age, He's giving us another opportunity to acknowledge our thirst, to acknowledge in humility that we need Him. And in the terrors of judgment, after all of this transcendence, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega. And by the way, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end, the comprehensive God of the universe, he cares about you. If you're thirsty, come to him. Do you recognize how astonishing that is? His, his thoughts, his concern turn to people like us. but only to those who are willing to humble themselves. For those who humble themselves now, it's just like Jesus has said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of heaven, ultimately beginning in the eternal age. And the first thing God says about people like us who are going to occupy that kingdom is the thirsty. I give them freely. The humble As one author said, nothing is required except to come and drink if you're thirsty. You've heard it said before, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin, our guilt, our desperation, and the need that make it necessary. We can't work, we can't earn it, we can't perform. We receive it in humility. We begin in humility. In this real abject need, this thirst, that's how we begin. But also we're described in terms of how we end. It's not just the beginning, but how we end. Look again in the text. Look at verse 7. It's not just thirsty, but you see that there's a contrast really. In verse 7 it says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. What heritage? Well, the new heaven, the new earth. Everything he's talking about in this text. So it's for those who conquer. Now that doesn't seem like people who are needy. It doesn't seem like people who are humble. It doesn't seem like people who are in a desperate circumstance. But hold on. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. This is the same language we saw last week in verse 3. You see, those who are included, those subjects who are included eternally, they begin in humility but they finish in faithfulness. They finish in faithfulness. They are overcomers. They are conquerors. And if you remember, this is the same language that's used in chapters 3, 2, and 3 for the seven churches. Every one of the churches, there's a message to those who conquer or who overcome. And it's all on the basis of grace. Don't be confused by it. It's not for the strong among us. It's for the faithful among us. 
It's for those of us that just, we've admitted our need, we've said we're thirsty, and we've received the free gift. We start in humility, but then we continue on in faithfulness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, driven by the Word of God, strengthened by the church of Jesus Christ. We are the ones who finish in faithfulness. They and the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and you and me at Calvary Baptist of Santa Barbara, if we are followers of Jesus, we are conquerors. There's an already not yet factor here. And by the way, sometimes when we say already not yet, here's the way we translate that. Already, or someday perhaps, someday, but not really. That's how we hear that. Someday, but not really. But it really is already, but not yet. It is already true. It is guaranteed. And yet the fullness of the reception hasn't happened yet. But if you are in Christ, if you are forgiven, you are guaranteed. There's a, the Holy Spirit is called a seal of guarantee, a, a down payment. You will be an overcomer. You will be a conqueror. This is the mystery of what's called sometimes the perseverance of the saints. I think a better term is the preservation of the saints. This is the promise that those that God truly makes His own will always forever be His own. We will be conquerors. So by grace alone, through faith alone, some are included eternally. But if you remember when we read the text earlier, some are not. As opposed to conquerors, others are the conquered. They're conquered by the evil one. They're conquered by their own sinful, self-centered pride. And it's astonishing to me, we'll see it over the next few weeks, that in these last two chapters, three times there's another list of those who are excluded from the kingdom. Now let me remind you the setting again. This is after time has passed. This is after judgment has happened. This is in the eternal age. And yet in the glimpses of the eternal age, God is so merciful that He is reminding us because He gives us this back in time. He wants us to see that this is a sober warning. This is a demonstration of grace. This is an opportunity for those who are not yet believers to become believers before it's too late. This can't happen when God speaks these words. It's over. It's done with. But it can have application now for people who haven't acknowledged their thirst, who haven't begun to be faithful. But we have to recognize three times in these chapters, this is the first, verse 8 is the first, that there are identity markers of those who will be excluded. Who will be excluded. We will be included because of Christ because we came in humility and because we finished in faithfulness, but there will be some who will be excluded. And verse 8 has these descriptors. I won't go through them all because I'm out of time. But it's an ugly list, isn't it? It's an ugly list. And you'll note that they're not described by what they do. They're, just, they're labeled as what they are. It's not people who do murder. It's murderers. It's not people who engage in sexual immorality. It's those who are the sexually immoral. Because this is their identity. This is who they are. 
These are characteristic patterns of disobedience. This is radical individualism. These, these are those who persist. They, they persist in resisting the God of heaven and they reveal their identities, their identities of sinfulness. That's the reason these words are so terrifying. In 1 Corinthians 6, you know this text, right? Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? By the way, that's what we're talking about. It says in verse 8, their part will be, as opposed to the heritage that those included, that we will enjoy, the people who persist in rebellion, their inheritance, their part, in verse 8, will be the lake of fire, not inheriting, inheriting the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What's the point? Anyone who has this as their fundamental identity is excluding themselves from the kingdom of God. This proud independence, this individualism, this rebellion, this willingness to say, I am my own God. I determine my identity. Can I push it a little bit? I determine my gender. I determine what I do with the child in my womb if I'm a woman. I will be God. I won't be told what to do. Not by any human law, not by the Supreme Court, and not by the God sovereign of the universe. People who live that way as their identity will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this language is very revelation language. Verse 8, all of these are, they seem to be the repetition of the kind of resistance that we have recorded in Revelation. But don't just think it's the end times because all of these apply to all rebellion against the Creator, including our own depraved hearts. I mean, you look at this list and you say, wait a minute, I'm not without faith. I'm not detestable. I'm not a murderer. But what did Jesus say? If you're angry with your brother, you've murdered in your heart. And if you look after a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. And those kind of people are not going to inherit God's kingdom. So where does that leave us? Well, thank God it leaves us verse 11. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you. And we could read it, and such were some of us. Amen? Such were some of us, but we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There are some who will be excluded But if you are in Christ, if you are forgiven, if you are washed and sanctified and justified through the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, you will be included eternally. And we'll look at what that means next week. I leave you with this. We're to give thanks this week. If you look at just this text, we're to give thanks for the the truth that we have in His Word. Anybody say amen? We also give thanks for the grace of the free offer. He didn't say we had to earn it. He said, if you're thirsty, just receive it. It's a free gift. Can anybody say amen? 
So there's truth and grace there. There's also the grace of sustaining help. It, it, says, it says that those who overcome, but we all know we're not going to overcome. We're not going to conquer on our own effort. And so we have the grace of God's sustaining help. In fact, that's the, really the definition of grace is God's supernatural undeserved help. So we have grace that we can give thanks for, that he helps us. Can anybody say amen? But we also have the truth that he is absolutely holy and just. And that terror is in verse 8. Because for those who persist in their sin, they will be excluded. And that is a demonstration of his holy nature. And so as painful as it is for us, we also should be willing to give thanks for his absolute holiness and justice. That truth. So you see where I'm going here. There's truth and there's grace. There's truth and grace that we give thanks for. For the one who is our sovereign. Just one more time. Look again in Revelation 21. Look at the words again. In verse 5. Revelation 21 verse 5. And with this I close. And he who was seated on the throne. In other words the sovereign. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. If you want to take away this morning, it's this rest and rejoice. In your sovereign. Rest and rejoice in your sovereign. Let's pray together. Father, we stand in grace. It's the only way we can claim these promises, it's through your kindness and your mercy. Like so much of Scripture, these words are encouraging and they are terrifying at the same time. But we receive them as they are and we give you praise. We thank you for the grace that we can receive freely what you offer. We thank you also for the truth that your words are trustworthy and true. We thank you for the truth that you will judge and you are holy. And we thank you for the grace that you give us in sustaining us and faithfulness to the end. You are our sovereign. And this should not drive us to slavish fear, to terror, but it should bring us into rest and rejoicing. At the same time, Father, we can't neglect those that we love and we care about that are, by all appearances, they are going to be excluded and our hearts grieve and we intercede. And we ask that your spirit would work in surprising ways in their hearts and lives. But help us this day to rest and rejoice in you, our sovereign God. In Jesus' glorious name we pray, amen.